0: The blood shed for you, the body broken for you, the blood shed for you, the body broken for you, the blood shed for you, the body broken for you, the blood shed for you, the body broken for you. How many times have you heard that? And it doesn't send chills down your spine anymore. You ever found yourself in a spiritual wasteland? Like, I'm just totally dry. I bet we've all been there at some point at various times. I don't know how many times Rick said that in the few moments I was sitting there, maybe 75, 80 times, maybe 100. The blood shed for you, the body broken for you. The blood shed for you, the body broken for you. And we hear it, and it can go in, and we can regurgitate it. And yet, do we stop? and allow it to wash over us in such a way that causes us to realize, wow. When is the last time that shocked me? I want to approach Romans 10 with you this morning in such a way that God alters us, that we not leave here this morning. Without feeling, we have the sense that we've encountered the living God and His call upon us. So whether you're watching online right now or you're in the auditorium, I'm going to ask you in a moment to take out your Bibles and go to Romans 10. But before you do that, let's go before the Heavenly Father and ask Him to intersect us through His Word. Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we just made some awesome declarations through song. We told you to take our heart and take all that we have. And I'm thinking some of us said that lightly because it was just a lyric and a song. And now we find ourselves having to stop and say, did I really mean that? So we're coming with a surrendered heart at this moment, Father, right now where you stop us and cause us to say, I want to count the cost because you've asked us to step out onto the waters into places where feet would fail and to trust you and to give you our entire heart and all that we are. And we're guilty of holding a lot of that back. So, Father, as we look at your word this morning, the things you caused to be written down for our sake, we ask that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who not only inhabits each of us who believe in Jesus, but also inhabits this place, because we're told where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst of them, so you're here, Father. We pray that you would indeed teach us, and don't let us leave here without feeling that sense of wonder and awe. God, I pray that you would take away the mundane attitude that we're guilty of. Revive our hearts, Father. We would pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans 10, maybe have it on your phone or you have a hard copy. If you don't own a Bible, there's Bibles in the back, free Bibles, I'd love for you to take one with you this morning. What we're going to look at is going to go pretty quick. Because what we're doing this morning is actually a setup for what we're going to look at next week, and I'll explain that in just a minute, but essentially next week we're going to be looking at the story of Jonah, Jonah and the whale. If you've ever heard that story before, you know it's a really, really familiar story about a guy who's a prophet and is probably the most unwilling prophet in all of human history. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Yet God said, you're going to carry my word. You're going to do exactly what I've told you to do, and I'm going to make sure you do it the right way. Well, this week is actually a setup to that, and you'll see why in just a few minutes. So let's start with Romans 10, verse 17. We're not going to get quite that far this morning, but this is a really familiar verse. It says, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the Word of Christ. I bet if you've grown up in church, you've heard that verse a lot over the course of your life. Faith comes by hearing. We talked last week a lot about faith, what faith is, and I said you can boil it down into a a really succinct definition by saying faith is essentially this. Faith is taking God at His Word. If you want to know what faith is, a really easy definition, faith is simply believing God taking God at His Word. God said it. I believe it. That's what faith is. So very succinctly, when you look at verse 17, when it starts talking about faith coming from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, that means the Word of God actually creates faith. The Word creates faith. Now, Paul's got a really simple logic in chapter 10, as you probably have noticed while we're working through this. He says, there's only one way to be saved – If you're looking for salvation, there's only one way, and it's not by works. It's by calling on the name of the Lord. But before you can call on the name of the Lord, you've got to believe. But in order to believe, there's got to be an opportunity to hear the Word. And the Word creates faith. See, it's the circle that God has created. You need it, and there's only one way to get it. And the only way to get it is by hearing it, so that means there's got to be somebody who's carrying it. It's a very simple logic. So if you step back into Paul's world in the first century when he's writing the book of Romans, he's writing to a group in his social circle, his sphere, people whom he had influence over in the city of Rome. People in other churches whom he knew, but also his friends who were Jews who were not yet believers in Christ. And he's writing to these groups of people, trying to help them understand this logic. And here's what he's calling them to. He's saying, you've got to believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the conclusion that many of you have arrived at this morning already. How hard would that be if you are part of the Jewish nation and your nation put Jesus on the cross and you crucified Him in a Roman form and killed Him as a criminal, an enemy of the state. Yep, He died as an enemy of the state. That's what they said, they put a label on Him. But He actually died for your sin. And He rose again. See, in the first century, they weren't thinking that Jesus rose again necessarily. They weren't thinking that he died for sin, and Paul's writing to this group, and he's saying, you've got to believe this. This is a reality. All that is context to where we start out this morning in verse 11. Romans chapter 10, verse 11, for the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And you notice that he's quoting Isaiah. It's in capital letters in the Bible, too. If you happen to have your Bible open, you'll see that it's caps in in there. That's not just me doing that. Uh, he already quoted Isaiah in chapter 9, and now he's doing it again, the exact same verse. And he says, whoever believes in Him, they not going to be disappointed. You might remember a month ago when we were in chapter 9, and I said, that means there's no shame. You're not going to stand before God one day and be ashamed that you believed in Jesus? We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Chapter 9 was really clear that saying that there's only one thing anybody can do to be saved, and that's believe. And God's requirement has always been the same. He doesn't save on the basis of your birth, and He doesn't save on the basis of your behavior. He saves on the basis of faith. So it's really significant that Paul quotes Isaiah because Isaiah is focusing on faith. Whoever believes in Him, whoever has faith in Him... See, the faith issue is constantly emphasized in the Bible. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament, and Isaiah is writing the same thing. Salvation is through faith. You know what that means, church? That means it's open to everybody, not just a group of individuals who happen to do the things the right way and cross the T's and dot the I's and work out the system completely on their own. No, that's not what it means. It means it's open, it's available for everyone, as you saw last week. So, Paul's simply doing this. He's leaving no doubt that everyone who believes enjoys a reality. You enjoy a reality this morning. None of you who believe will be put to shame. None of you will be disappointed because you're going to stand before God one day. There's a reality coming. You're going to stand before God and you're going to give an accounting. And in that time, you will not be put to shame so Paul's saying, it's not like you're going to appear before God, and he's going to say, oh, you thought that was for you? Oh, I'm sorry. Thanks for playing. You can exit to the left. No, that's not it. Paul's saying there's no reason to have any fear whatsoever. You're not going to be put to shame. You're not going to be disappointed. See, this verse and this upcoming verses we're going to look at in just a moment, it's talking about faith in Jesus being utterly transforming because where there was fear in your life, Maybe you were afraid to stand before God. Scriptures are saying, "You don't have to be afraid. There's no reason to have fear. You can have confidence because your confidence rests in God. It doesn't rest in you. If, if you're calling on someone to save you who's no stronger than you, what's that?" It's not, it's not going to help, but if you're calling on someone who has the capacity, who is worthy of the trust, that's what Paul's driving towards, you're calling on him, your confidence is in him. So verse 11 emphasizes whoever believes, and this whoever is something we need to understand because this has always been God's plan. He's been calling the whole world for millennia, not just the last 2,000 years, but the whole world for millennia through faith, from eternity past, God's word has gone out, and it always accomplishes the purpose for which it was set forth. I love Isaiah 55, 11. Maybe you've never written this one down before. Write it down in the back of your Bible. My word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. All this builds up to where we're going in the next verse, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Mark it down, church. God hears the cry of anyone who calls on Him. If you believe that, say amen. God hears the cry of anyone who calls on Him, and I need to add a caveat to that. I know you know what I mean by that. God hears the cry of anyone who calls on Him for salvation. And the reason I add that caveat is because God says, you call on me for salvation, I will hear you and I will respond. But if you're calling on me just to fix your bank account and you have no interest in a relationship with me… If you're calling on me to fix a sickness, if you're calling on me to fix a broken relationship and you stiff arm me your entire life, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about those who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. He hears that cry, and he responds, and he identifies you as his child. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on him, God hears that cry. Anyone. This is the exact same message that was written to the Galatians. If the Bible is anything, it's incredibly consistent. Look with me on the screen. Galatians 3:28: "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." Now how shocking was this next statement to those whom Paul hung out with? "All are Abraham's offspring. All are heirs according to promise." Now, in chapter 3, he was saying, there's no difference in sin. There's no difference in sin. You may have some small sin. You may have some big sin. Other individuals may have gigantic sin, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And now he's saying there's no distinction in salvation. There's no difference in salvation for people groups. How shocking was this to the Jews at that time? What? What are you saying, Paul? Gentiles are in too. they don't have to cross the T's and dot the I's? They're just like us, they're Abraham's offspring? I'm not sure I agree with that, Paul. That's why he's saying, same Lord. Same Lord who called Abraham is the Lord of all who believe. But most people in Paul's day were looking for a national Messiah. They wanted a new president of their states. They wanted someone who would come and fix things politically. They weren't looking for a salvation Messiah to save them from their sins, and in their mind they can't mix Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews. These guys are really divided. Kenneth Cragg lived in the early part of the last century. Just for context, look at his quote. He said this, these two were divided at every significant point. Racially, culturally, and religiously, there were distinctions between the two, and they were really proud racist. Jews are really proud of their race. Greeks are really proud of their race. The two don't want to cross over. Grateful it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes down walls. There is but one God, Paul says, and He saves, and that means distinctions are irrelevant. Same is true today. Whether Jew or Greek, Asian, European, Russian, Latino, African, all have only one way of salvation because there's but one Lord. There's one God. One Lord is Lord of all, and His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings it. See, this is incredibly comprehensive. There's no exception whatsoever. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we've got to understand that phrase, call on. What does that actually mean? Because I thought it was God who called me. Well, you would be right if that's the way you're thinking. He does, but it's also saying all who call on Him. There's a calling that takes place on your part, and if you don't know Jesus this morning, you want to know this very clearly. There has to be an awareness, an awareness of your own inadequacy. I've tried crossing all the T's. I've tried dotting all the I's. I've tried doing everything perfect, and it's just not working out. I'm aware that I'm inadequate. God, I need you because I can't do this. See, that's a calling out of the awareness of your own failure. It's a genuine conviction. Jesus, I know you can be relied on. I know I can have confidence in you. So the calling he's talking about here, this is a response out of our heart to God's first call towards us. And he says in verse 13, as a result of that, you will be saved. As, if you happen to have your Bible open, by the way, this would be a great phrase for you to circle if you've not done that before. Maybe you've already circled it in your Bible. Will be saved. And here's the reason I really point this out. That might be the most important statement in the entire passage we're looking at. Will be saved. Do you notice that it's written in the future tense? I thought I am saved. Will be saved. He's looking at a, a future tense here in this verb. He's talking about the final state of salvation, meaning this, going back to what we were just talking about, in the day that you stand before God, in the day that you appear before Him, you will be saved. You will not wander into that environment, you will not enter into that environment standing before God wondering, I hope this is going to work out, you will be saved. In the day that you stand before God, see check this, Jesus' death is so powerful, His blood shed for you, His body broken for you, so powerful, it doesn't just save you now, it saves you through all of eternity. It's not like you'll come to year 1,000 and God says, you know, you've been here 1,000 years, kind of tired of you, why don't you leave? No, you're saved for eternity. He says, I've got you, you will be saved. It's future tense, it keeps going and going and going, saved through eternity just like you're saved right now. All that leads, Paul, to this brilliant summation, which really comes directly right face forward to you and I. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Who's the they, church? We'll come back to the word preacher in just a minute so you're really clear on what he's talking about there. But who's the they? Five times within just a couple sentences... They 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 is the they the people you hang out with in your neighborhood is it your coworker across the cubicle is it the person you cross in the hallway every day at work and you wonder what in the world's going on in their life is it the student you stand next to in the locker in the hallway or you walk to study hall with, or you meet at Big Beal for coffee. Who is the "they? Is it your family members? Is it the person you stand next to the barbecue with? So you can feel the weight of Paul. Paul is writing here, because he's got his social circle who's receiving these writings, and he feels the weight of the "they" in his life. And how are they going to hear? Because hearing the Word is what produces faith, and how's that going to happen unless people start talking about it? Now, here's the difficulty in the world that Paul lives in. This period of time, people only got information one way, only one primary vehicle, which was talking about it, because they couldn't necessarily all read. They weren't all literate. And of those who were written material, wasn't that available. And the apostles hadn't started to write the New Testament yet. Paul's just writing one of the letters, so the churches had just received spatterings of pieces. People couldn't sit down and read about Jesus, so they're dependent upon someone who's going to be talking about this Jesus because there's this impossibility of hearing something without somebody talking about it. This was true of the apostles and of the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament. Is it not true today? that we talk in the same way. You might use Twitter. You might use Instagram. You might use Facebook. You might use Snapchat. You might hang out at the barbecue. You might have the hallway conversation. You might have the opportunity to do the very thing that Paul's talking about here. We talk. We communicate. And Paul's saying, what are you talking about? What are you communicating? Because there's got to be someone to proclaim. How shall they hear without a preacher? And we need to understand that word, preacher. Because there is definitely this going on. There's the karugama, the, the, the annunciation, but that's not what he's talking about here. How will they hear without you talking about it in the hallway? Without intersecting your friend, your family member? How will they hear without? If you want to take it in its literal language, how will they hear without someone preaching? And I don't want to split hairs with you, but don't confuse what he's talking about with Sunday morning sermons, because you preach, New Hope, did you know that? You preach in everything you do all day long. You preach at work, you preach at school, you preach in the car, you preach to your family, you preach to your neighborhood, they're watching. They're watching to see, do you really believe this stuff? Is this the core of your belief? Has it really come out of you? The the verb that he's actually using here is the action of a herald, someone who's talking. They've been given a message, and they're told to proclaim it. So there's this idea of a higher authority. Someone's above you. It's not your message. You're just the relayer of the message. There's a higher authority above you that's given it to you. So it's implicit within this that you're not a self-appointed herald. That would be a contradiction in terms. There there is no self-appointed herald as far as the Bible is concerned. You're doing exactly what God told you to do. That means something very important. That means the gospel message does not originate with you. Did you know that? Here's a relief for you. That means you don't save anyone. Did you know that? You don't save anyone. God saves, right? Right? You're just the relayer. You're just the vehicle. You're just the communicator of the information to your neighborhood, to your social circle. You're just putting it out there. This points to a confidence. When you proclaim the gospel, you do so because God sent you. God sent you out. So we, if you lifted the cup this morning, you broke the bread, you lifted the cup, we as believers have been saved to serve God. And the best way you serve is when you carry the witness. You preach the power of Jesus to save. And Paul's really hammering this point as he closes it in verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? We just hit that issue. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So I'm asking you this morning how are your feet looking? Do you need a spiritual pedicure? I'll use my feet, for example. I'm sockless today. I know, it's shocking. I have pretty feet. <laughs> I have one big toe that is from my dad and one big toe that is from my mom. It's the weirdest thing. I pointed it out to them when I was a teenager. They looked at it and they said, huh, he's right. That's all I got out of him. I know I'm rabbit trailing, but just bear with me. I don't want to be too distracting to you with my bare feet, but I'm asking you, how are your feet doing? Do you need a spiritual pedicure? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? Paul has just reached back to Isaiah again. Isaiah 52. And in Isaiah 52, something extraordinary is happening. And his social circle is completely aware of what he's just done. Israel has been decimated when Isaiah wrote that. Israel has been destroyed by another nation sweeping in, wiping them out, demolishing their country, and hauling most of their people off to what is known as the Babylonian captivity. For 70 years, God allowed them to be taken into another country hundreds of miles away, and they're held there as prisoners. Some refugees are left behind to deal with the mess. And after 70 years, because God foretold how long they would be there, there begins to be rumors. People are hearing in the streets, what? They're... They're being set free, they're coming back. Can that be true? Is it possible? And sure enough, the messengers begin to arrive from Babylon, what we think of today as modern Iran and Iraq, Persia. Babylonia sets people free and messengers go ahead of them and they begin arriving in Israel and they begin pronouncing, it's true, it's true. Those who were held captive have been set free. They've been released from their bondage and they're coming back to the promised land. They're coming home. The reports were good. It was beautiful news. The proclamation was of peace. So Paul has taken this ancient Old Testament image and he's dragged it forward into the New Testament and saying, if the message was good news over an earthly win, How much more good news if it's the promise of eternal salvation. You have been sent with that same message. And if you're being sent, two things are true of that. When you're sent, you're not sent under your authority. You're sent under the authority of the one who has sent you. And the message doesn't belong to you. You get to share it, but it's not yours. The Old Testament prophets sent in the same way. The New Testament apostles sent in the same way. Jesus sent out his followers, Matthew 28, in the same way. So, so are you, Christ follower, who just witnessed to each other. I believe this. I'm holding up the bread, I'm holding up the cup. I believe what Jesus did. So you're sent in a witness-bearing capacity. So follow this very simple logic that Paul has in chapter 10. Only those who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. But only those who believe can call. And only those who hear can believe. So that means only those who have a preacher can hear. The word preacher is a bit misunderstood because people think it's what I do here. Oh, that's true. This is the proclamation. But you preach when you go out into the world that you live in. People are watching you. So Paul brings that message forward from Isaiah 52, and I'll put the actual words from Isaiah 52 on the screen. Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. So I'm asking you today, how are your feet looking when it comes to the issues of Jesus? It's really remarkable that He selected feet as the beautiful part of the body because most people, when they're looking at their feet, they're not thinking their feet are too beautiful, right? Thinking, uh, kind of like this appendage I have to deal with. It's there. So women go to great lengths to paint their toenails. We, We put bracelets around ankles. People try and get tan feet. You know what's true in that period of time about the feet? The feet of people who walked with messages a long ways wearing flat leather sandals were typically very cracked, bloody, dirty. And did they stink? Yeah. So when you're thinking feet and you're thinking context is this, you're thinking, yuck. I mean, why would he choose that as something beautiful? It's anything but pretty. So these messengers traveled on foot and and they're bringing news, the captives have been set free. The captives are returning. The chains have been loosed. There is a future. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great joy, which shall be to all people, that unto you this day a Savior is born. His name is Christ Jesus the Lord. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great joy. Last night after the Saturday night service, I was getting ready to leave. People hung around a long time and I walked out into the parking lot and there was a bunch of ladies standing out there comparing their toes to each other, (laughs) looking at the, the paint job that had been done. And, and they didn't believe me about me having two different big toes, so they wanted me. I took my shoes off so they could see. And they said, yeah, that's, that's true, weird, huh? My feet look really good. I've got toenails painted. You know, they start talking about their toes. And I said, Whoa, wait, 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 you, you guys, you completely missed. We're not talking about the physical beauty of your feet. They knew that. How beautiful, New Hope. Are the feet of those who walk into the barbecue or into the Big B or into school or into the office and have a conversation about this one who redeemed you and shed his blood on the cross and his body was broken for you? How stunning that God trusts us with that message. What you think of when you think of your belief structure should be this. Believing means committing to something at your very core of who you are. At the very core of your being. We go to war for what we believe. We are persuaded by political parties for what we believe. We choose colleges for what we believe. What do you believe at your core about Jesus? Because professing Jesus to your peer group, it's simply giving expression to your core belief that you know, that you know, that you know that Jesus is the only way. How will they hear without a preacher? I want to pray for each of us that way, that we would be known in this community not for the church with just the new building, but as a church that carries the good news to people who need it. You good with that? Let's pray that way. Father, I lift up our church, and and I'm so grateful for what we get to celebrate with building a new building, but we don't want to be known for just having a bigger, shinier building. But rather, Father, You're the source of why we do what we do So let us be known as a group of people who carry the good news. Magnify what you do through us. We're grateful that you're growing our church. We're grateful that you put your blessing on us. How grateful, Father, that you would ignite us and that we would be used as a people who would carry the good news to those who desperately need it. Father, use us in that way. Don't let us leave here today without encountering the reality of this responsibility. Thank you for the task. Help us to steward it well. We pray for that. We believe that you want to work through us and we know we cannot do it in our own strength, so we lean on you and we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us as we carry forth the Word of Jesus Christ. It's in His magnificent name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.